Welcome to an impromptu episode of the Boot Noise Podcast. In the days of yore, it has been said that I am your host, Eirik Storsund. I guess this is the uh, Halloween special episode or something like that. This is actually a uh, podcast episode that I intended and actually wrote to be an article initially, but I decided at the last minute to actually turn it into an episode. And since this was done so hastily, and right at the eve of Halloween, I've decided to just uh, skip the regular delay when it comes to podcast releases, just uh, for this one time. Sorry patrons, uh, see it as a bonus, please. I'm just learning the ropes here, and you know, I guess I might as well just make podcast episodes on my own. I know you guys love my guests as much as I do, and uh, as much as I like to talk and yak along, um, it is much more fun when you got somebody to talk to. Me speaking for an hour straight is uh, is quite daunting, to tell you the truth. Anyway, in this episode I got no guests, it's just me for the next 15 minutes. Perhaps we shouldn't consider this one of the full episodes, like maybe this is a different concept altogether, I don't know. I'm an amateur, I don't have any experience doing this shit, you know? So, uh, if you got any tips, what would you like to hear in future episodes? Do you want more idle chit-chat? Do you want rants? What do you want? What do you want? So, anyway, uh... Now, have you ever heard of the Oseberg burial? If you know anything about the Vikings, I'm sure you've seen this massive ship with its uh, exquisitely carved prow or read about the extensive inventory buried with it. The burial itself is a fascinating and maybe a bit grim study of Viking Age mortuary practices and beliefs, but there is another story to it that few people know about. This is a supernatural story, a ghost story that will take us away from Norway, across the ocean through the ghettos of New York, where a Brooklyn fortune teller might have been responsible for the discovery of the most extravagant Viking Age burial ever found. Stay tuned. Let's go back in time to the year 834. Before us, the front of a ship protrudes out of a half-finished mound, forming the ominous stage of a burial drama that must have been intense, even by Norse standards. For months, peasants and slaves alike had been digging ditches to prepare for its final journey. Before they could send the vessel off to the other world, they had to pull it ashore and drag it a full kilometer inland. The construction of the mound itself required some expertise too. In total, the mound consisted of approximately 70 cubic meters of rock and 33 hectares of turf, which is the equivalent of 61 American football fields. As custom required, the ship was loaded with everyday items. Some of these had been buried in advance, before the funeral itself. 
among other things, some pots and pans, and an entire bull which had been slaughtered, put on the ship, and covered with soil and rocks. Today, members of the local community gathered around, as the final stages of a meticulous month-long sequence of rituals and ceremonies rose to a crescendo, in a procession where people carried carved beast heads, exquisitely decorated Irish buckets, produce such as apples and blueberries and all manner of food and drink. They also carried silk-trimmed garments, down pillows and duvets. A wagon was wheeled up on the ship. Sleighs, too. Every form of known transportation, whether by land or sea, was represented in the burial, for the arduous journey to the land of the dead. Next came the queen. She was about middle-aged, the day she died, the day her breath ceased. An etymological side note here is that the word for spirit in Old Norse is ond and comes from a root meaning to breathe. When the body dies, when the spirit leaves the body, the body stops breathing. But sometimes spirits could also come and go through respiratory organs. You could send your spirit off into other shapes and forms, and your respiratory organs were also vulnerable entrances where other spirits could come and enter your body, possess or attack you. Even today, Scandinavians say onde for breath and ond for spirit. Now, by the time the queen's burial chamber was ready, she had already been dead for several months physically at least, but perhaps not in spirit, certainly not socially. They laid her to rest on a bed inside a tent chamber at the entrance of the mound itself. But she was not destined to undertake this journey alone. Next to her, another woman was laid in a bed of her own. At the time of death, she was old and toothless. Her back was crooked and due to some curse or illness that nobody could quite comprehend, though we might call it a hormonal disorder, she was club-footed, obese, and prone to excessive body and facial hair. She also suffered from cancer and arthritis. We may rightfully ask who this disfigured woman of 80 or so years was. Was she an outcast or a slave perhaps? Consider the fact that she had many physical handicaps. Nonetheless, she reached a very high age for the time, between 70 and 80 years old, which means that she must have been cared for in her lifetime. We suspect that perhaps she was a powerful ritual specialist, an oracle who possessed the means of otherworldly communication, who could petition spirits and speak to the dead. By her side lay a small pouch of cannabis seeds, did she use them as an entheogen, a drug to send her off into trance-like states? Or was it merely a remedy to alleviate her chronic pain? From there on, the questions just keep piling up. Was she sacrificed to accompany the queen to the world of the dead? If she was sacrificed, we can perhaps imagine that it happened right there on the deck of the ship, in front of the entire community 
ritually killed to accompany an important woman. That's one theory, at least. But maybe it was the other way around. Perhaps the woman whom we call the queen was actually a slave accompanying the oracle to the other side. And there are certain things that also point to this possibility. The younger woman's skull bore signs suggestive of either a brutal death or possibly severe mistreatment shortly after she passed away. I'm gonna be graphic here because there is no other way to put it. Her skull had been crushed by a powerful blow or extreme application of pressure that caved her head in. Either this was the cause of her death or somebody did it to her post-mortem. Interestingly, the Arab chronicler Ibn Fadlan claimed in the 10th century to have witnessed such a similarly grim Viking funeral in Russia, involving the ritual rape and sacrifice of a drugged slave who volunteered to follow her chieftain in the grave. Particularly interesting is the fact that the sacrifice was preceded by a seance in which the slave girl peered three times into the world of the dead. And we have to ask ourselves, could a similar scene have been performed at Usberg too? Whoever these women were, and why they came to be buried in such a baroque and luxurious yet grotesque fashion, the funeral was far from finished at this point. Live animals were brought to the ship. Their shrieks and cries would gradually fill the air as yet another ox, four dogs, and fifteen horses were brought up and ritually slaughtered right there. The deck must have been red with blood and guts. The stink of innards and warm, fresh death filled the air. So far, this is the story of the Oseberg burial as most people know it here. But the story also has another, less talked about chapter. It was written some hundred plus years ago and concerns the spooky pretext that made the excavation of the Oseberg mound possible. The farm Oseberg was, in Norwegian terms, what we call an Ødegård. This literally means a deserted farm, but in a Norwegian context it is a term that specifically signifies a farm deserted because of the plague, the Black Death, which decimated approximately 60% of the entire Norwegian population between 1348 and 1350, a national trauma in an almost post-apocalyptic state. The plague left an abundance of barren fields and properties scattered across the country. Oseberg was one such farm, but it later came under a larger estate called Jarlsberg. And yes, there is some connection to the cheese of the same name, but that's another story. There's also another thing we have to make clear. Oseberg was originally the name of the farm, not the mound. There are actually several mounds on the property, and the mound we're discussing was for a long time known as Revehoen, the fox mound. Still, due to the historical precedence for the name Oseberg mound, we're gonna stick to that. It makes it a lot more convenient for the both of us. One thing that is interesting is the fact that the Oseberg Mound was a powerhouse of local folklore in the 1800s, long before it was even excavated. Since Oseberg had been deserted during the Black Death, some people thought that the mound was a mass grave, an assertion given some credence due to the fact that the locals reported seeing the dead coming and going from the mound every now and then, 
or dancing around it. They also said that lights sometimes emanated from the mound, and one could allegedly feel the ground strangely buckling as one walked across it. When the ship was finally found, people said that there had always been something peculiar about that mound, and now they knew what it was. Obviously, there were some attempts at excavating it. They made several attempts at excavating the mound, but it's interesting that the ship somehow managed to avoid detection for a long time. Norway in the 1800s went through something of a gold rush following the find of the Gukstå ship, and students of the emerging antiquarian sciences were eager to get their hands dirty, finding treasures from the legendary age of the sagas, back, you know, when Norway was a proud, independent nation. You have to remember that Norway at the time was under Sweden. Some even speculated back then that the mound at Oseberg was a ship burial. Many attempts were made to pry the mound open, but yielded no results. One reason was the fact that a yellow, stinking water kept flooding in as they dug, mudding up the dense clay soil of the site. The diggers were put off by the foul odor rising from the ditches, which lent some credence to the rumor that the mound was actually a mass grave, despite the fact that bits and pieces of carved wood came up in the digs, which were conducted at night, as was the custom when going through mounds for treasure. Fearing the plague, locals were largely discouraged from exploring the mound further. Back in the 1800s, it was very common for Norwegians to go to America in the hope of amassing money. One of these people was Johannes Hansen, who bought the Oseberg farm in the late 1800s. Nonetheless, he spent quite some time in New York as a barge pilot. But one time, Johannes got sick, physically ill, and decided to seek the guidance of a clairvoyant woman in Brooklyn, who was popular with the Norwegian immigrants living in and around the ghetto nicknamed Lapskaus Boulevard around 8th Avenue. Our main source for this story is his widow, who says that when Johannes entered the small room where the clairvoyant worked, she put her hand on his shoulder and asked, Why are you in America? To make money, Johannes answered. Oh, you don't need to be here to do that, the soothsayer said. You have an abundance of treasures in your field at home. You only need to dig in the mound that lies there. Do you wish to see it? She continued. Obviously, Johannes answered yes. And the woman presented a bowl of water and prompted him to look. And when Johannes peered into the water, he saw the mound at Oseberg bright as day, recognizing the rose bushes that grew on top of it. He later said, I was so spooked, I almost fainted. Once back in Norway, Johannes began to dig around the mound, but he, like everyone else before him, found nothing noteworthy, at least nothing that resembled a treasure in any way. Nonetheless, Johannes was convinced that a treasure lay inside it. This was strengthened by the fact that one night, as he returned from a trip to the nearby town of Houghton, he claimed that he saw a grey-clad woman walking across his field. When she reached the mound, she spun around and sank down, vanishing into the ground. 
I mentioned before that Johannes got ill when he was in New York. Well, he finally succumbed in 1901, and the mound lay at peace for a while. But the farm was eventually resold, and the new owner began conducting excavations of his own, based on the stories he'd heard. The first thing he did was to dig a ditch to drain the site of the allegedly pestilent water that worried his neighbors. It didn't take long before he dug his way down to the burial chamber itself, and in 1903 he approached the historical museum in Christiania, today's Oslo. This prompted them to host a major excavation under the leadership of Professor Gabriel Gustafsson and his assistant Håkon Schettlig. What they found was the mother of all Viking funerals, the likes of which have never been found again. So ladies and gentlemen, did I spook you? Did you get scared? I doubt I could scare a fly, man. I'm probably mixing metaphors saying that. Anyway, it's true. I don't think I could deliberately make anybody spooked out. Maybe if it wasn't on purpose, like if I was creepy or something. I'm sure somebody thought that. Anyway, I'm just, you know, just like you. Just happened to have a degree or something like that and uh, a no proper job to spend it on, so, so I'm making podcasts for you guys instead. At least you appreciate it, I hope. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. If you like my stuff or any of the content on BruteNorse.com, please consider supporting me on Patreon.com forward slash BruteNorse. And yeah, dudes, uh, usually the previews of these episodes are always reserved for my patrons. I like to stress that. So this episode was the exception. A little uh, Halloween surprise, you know. Not gonna lie, I'm not very partial to Halloween myself. I much rather uh, like the, the good old mumming traditions we have here in Scandinavia around Christmas time that no kids do anymore. Dressing up as little, you know, you lads or whatever. We used to call it to go Yule Buck, like, uh, uh, freaking Yule Goat, man. And that's some pagan shit right there. You're looking for the pagan origins of Halloween, you know, looking under every rock. There's no freaking doubt about it in Scandinavian Christmas tradition, man. Where children walk from door to door dressed as these, uh, household spirits. That have some weird acculturation, like some sort of syncretism going on. Where it's not quite clear where, you know, the... The modern figure of Santa Claus stops and the, the folk religion and ancestor worship ends or starts. You know, which is which, man. Walking around there, there are these little gnomes. And they go from house to house and the adults have to have to appease these, you know, spirits of the dead. And that's some pagan shit right there. Pygmy people, children with rosy cheeks. They may look cute, but uh... You don't want to mess with the dead or household spirits or whatever they are in different regions in their different manifestations and incarnations. I mean, in some regions, there would be like a creature that would dress up as a goat and like parents would tell their kids that if they didn't behave properly, you know, the Yule Buck would come and beat the shit out of them. And sometimes it did, man. Other times the freaking Yule Buck was just like a barrel of aquavit, you know, a barrel of spirits. Not the, not the supernatural kind, but you know, the, the stuff that gets you drunk and they'll do like a mock sacrifice of the Yule Goat. That's my sort of tradition. So anyway, whether you're listening to this around Halloween when the veil between the living and the dead is at its thinnest or whatever, 
or you're listening to this sometime in the future, in all likelihood most people will not listen to this at all. This was a kind of weird episode, but uh, thank you for listening anyway.